There you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. Our guest today is Wiley Gray, a Veterans of War. United States Marine Corps veteran is on a serious mission to bring education and healing to combat veterans navigating their lives with traumas. Meet Wiley Gray, a Veterans of War. And thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat and Task Force N. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, is United States Marine Corps veteran Wiley Gray. Wiley is the founding director of Veterans of War. He's also a survivor of a broken family, foster care, multiple deployments in support of the War on Terror. We're going to get to that and post-traumatic stress. Wiley has published parts of his story in book format, online for CNN, and has been awarded for his continued service in the veteran community by the big Fortune 500 company, Pepsi. The Veterans of War mission is very specific. It's to prevent veteran suicide. Veterans of War connects veterans to effective and holistic options available to combat suicide. Those tools are called entheogens, and they are as old as society itself. You know, that's a brand new word. Thanks for introducing me to that. Ayahuasca, wachuma, and psilocybin and other strong entheogens offer a new path towards healing. In the right setting, and and I know Wiley's going to talk about this, they can be strong exploratory tools useful for reconnecting veterans to a new sense of purpose livelihood, and even the pursuit of continued meaningful service after they separate from the military. When coupled with Veterans of War's curriculum, emphasizing mindfulness, meditation, and integration of lessons learned in their workshops, Wiley believes they can prevent and even eradicate veteran suicide completely in our community. I totally believe him. When you talk to Wiley, you're going to get it. So, Wiley, welcome to Straight Out of Combat Radio. I'm humbled and honored to have you here and to uh, be able to uh, actually sit you down for a minute and get your story. So, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. It's an incredibly important thing uh, to talk about, especially as our veteran community and the community at large suffers from probably the largest mental health crisis in recorded history. We need effective and safe solutions. So let's talk about them. And you're on it, man. I, I love that. And, uh, you know, you talk about on mission after the uniform. What I like about Wiley and what I like about your mission is even though you've taken the Marine Corps uniform off and served valiantly in combat, you're on another mission, a mission that's vitally, if not more important, to help heal the trauma of what these Marines and, and Army and Air Force and people have served in in uniform, what they've gone through. And you're so right about this suicide issue. So anyhow, let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit about 
your household growing up? Well, before we get too much further, I, I, I uh, want to just clear up. I wasn't in direct combat. I was deployed to a combat zone, um, but I, but I wasn't uh, in the infantry or anything like that. I was a uh, logistics uh, for an artillery battery. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. But equally as important, Wiley, you know that, man. Yeah, absolutely. I just yeah. didn't want anybody to, to think that I was uh, putting myself in, in, in on a pedestal that I wasn't quite in. Um, well, now that you're so- saying that, hold it. Here's a disclaimer too, man. I'm not a combat veteran. Yeah. I, I'm an army veteran. And it's kind of cool because I don't have to one up the veterans that we have on here who yeah. have been to that zone. So Thanks for that. Well, you know, something that I always talk to with other veterans, especially ones that are interested in the program, there's this um, interesting kind of idea and you're kind of echoing it a bit too, which is like, if you didn't go to combat that you're somehow less than, or that you somehow didn't have the full veteran experience. And I just want to remind our listeners, remind you, and, and, and certainly even for myself, everybody that goes into that area, you do what the military tells you to do. That's kind of how the military works. If the military had given any of us orders to go to those places, we would have done those things. But, you know, it takes every kind of person to make this mission work, whether you're talking about um, psychedelics in a guided setting for recovery, or if you're talking about controlling a battle space, you need all kinds of different people to make those missions work. So if anybody that's been in the military feels like they weren't quite in the full military for whatever reason, I just like to remind them that they're all in the less than one-tenth of one percent of Americans that have served in any capacity. So uh, you're already doing something that's out of the box, that, that is extraordinary. And it's absolutely something that most people have not done. So you're not less than for not getting the orders to go there. In fact, you're more than for even signing the dotted line in the first place to say you would. Yeah, you're so correct, man. I'll tell you, brother, you're right. When you raise the right and you swear to this oath to defend the Constitution of the United States, you're right. You become doesn't mean we're any better. It just means we have a, a, a different way in our life. And and mm-hmm. and you're right. If we had been put on notice and uh, had been called for deployment, we were there. So thanks for that. You know, let's find out what made Wiley Wiley and why Wiley is on this freaking mission to change the way things are being handled now with suicide. But, you know, tell us about your childhood. Yeah, my, my childhood was relatively rocky. I think that speaks to a lot of veterans' journey, to be honest. Mine might be a little different than most, but I think a lot of people come to the military because they need to either change something about their reality as it is or hope to change something positive in the future. I, I was no different. Um, so I um, grew up with my mom and dad early on. And then at the age of two, my mother and father divorced and my mother won custody, but my father ended up kidnapping me and taking me to another state and basically just keeping me for a couple of years. So my first real memory of my mother is actually when sheriffs are taking me out of my father's hands uh, at four years old and saying, this is your mom. So I'm crying and I'm screaming when I meet my mom for the first time in memory. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't get to see my father again from that moment on until I was 27. Just a completely fractured kind of childhood in terms of what a home and a family meant. And I stayed with my mom until I was 10. And she got into, at this point of, of life, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, she'd gotten into really hard the uh, crack cocaine epidemic. And because of that, everything in my life was always uh, uncertain. You know, I I grew up with not just surrounded by drugs and prostitution and all these things that you don't want to have. You know, I have a four-year-old daughter now and I can't even imagine 
that kind of an environment for her. But nonetheless, that's where I grew up. So at 10 years old, I'm getting taken away by the state, put into foster care. So my entire family, by the time I was 10, was just fractured and splintered to the winds. I ended up being adopted at the age of 13. And from that point forward, from 13 until 18, it was incredibly apparent to me that I didn't really have, nobody was planning anything for me. Nobody was saying, this is where you're going to go to college. You're going to be, you know, you should be uh, pursuing this. So in a lot of ways, I realized that if I wanted to have any sense of accomplishment or, or success in the world, I needed to define that myself. And one of the things I realized early on was I didn't have a very positive male role model at any point in my life. At 17, I joined the delayed entry program into the Marines. And at 18, I went to boot camp. That was really the first solid family uh, that I sort of defined. So you went to Paris Island then, right? No, no. I went to San Diego. I'm from Missouri originally. So okay. that's uh, the way they do that is if, if you're west of the Mississippi River, you go to uh, San Diego. And if you're east of it, then you go to Paris Island. So I was a Hollywood Marine. But they still have those yellow footprints, right? When you get oh, off yeah. the bus. Oh, yeah. What were you thinking, man, when you got to those? What were you thinking? I was thinking that I fundamentally had no idea what I'd gotten myself into. I'd read all I could get my hands on. I talked to the people in my, in my life, my recruiters, uh, one of the uh, young men that I had kind of modeled myself after early on, came back when I was in foster. He used to be, there was a, a guy named Andy, <laughs> and he used to be my babysitter uh, when I was in foster care. And at one point, he, I was maybe 16, and he left for boot camp. And when he came back, he was so put together. Like he had his, you know, he had on his service alphas. And when he walked into the room, he was a different person. He commanded the room. And that's, that really stuck with me. And I was like, man, I want that. I want to have that kind of, uh, you know, not, not just that, that kind of confidence, but, but that kind of strength of character that when I walk in, people notice, you know, I'm changing something. I saw that in the Marines. Um, so that's, that's the branch that I, you know, eventually chose. For me, that choice to go in the Marines became so fundamental to, to the person that I am. Honestly, I, I am a fan of anybody that puts on any uniform and decides to be a part of something bigger than themselves that serves people. At the time, I really believed that the United States Armed Forces really was that. I thought that I was defending democracy and that I was, you know, preventing possible negative outcomes for the people I cared about by taking those onto my shoulders. And you know what they say, you don't really know the weight of your rifle till you really have to carry it. Right. So at that point in my life, I didn't know the weight that I picked up. I just knew that I was ready to, to redefine myself in a positive way. Can you think of one thing that happened in boot camp? Like you said, you know, it was a stark realization when you were on those footprints. But can you think of maybe an instance or two in boot camp where you, where you finally realized the weight of your rifle? Where you go, holy cow, this is some serious stuff. Yeah, um, it, it's really, it was small ways for me. Um, pretty immediately, it became apparent that the energy was focused around the idea of you're going to go to war and you're going to kill people. And that, I mean, I now I can say very clearly that I wasn't put on this planet to take life. I'm, I'm here to help people heal themselves. I'm here to help people find a path towards recovery and towards being a better, fuller, more complete person. So when we would go, for example, to uh, what we call the chow hall, we go to the dining facility every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, it was normal as each, each uh, squad peeled off to line up for that, uh, for their chow hall run. You would say, like, for example, squad one, kill, kill, kill. 
Squad two, kill, kill, kill. Squad three, kill, kill, kill. And after, you know, hundreds of times, that's what's rolling around in your head. Kill, 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 kill. And I always had a really negative taste in my mouth from that. I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew that some people really embraced that. And I, and I had trouble embracing that idea that there could just be a black and white enemy. Like we're white, they're black. There's nothing in between. And when you get that order, you do what you're, you're told. There's no doubt in my mind I would have done what I was told. But the weight that my soul would have carried, I don't know that I, I would have ever recovered from. Something that I struggled with, you know, with my deployment in Afghanistan years later. But there were a few times in boot camp where it became, you know, very obvious that no matter what you thought you were here for, your job is to be a basic rifleman and to uh, accomplish the mission. And typically the mission was kill the enemy. Um, yeah, that, that became stark very early. You know, I, I, it, you just took me back to like the first day I was in boot camp in the army, where they all came in in, in combat battle dress and with their M16s and screaming and yelling. You know what makes the grass grow? Blood, and, exactly. And and it was like, you know, it's kind of funny. I'd never really thought about. It. it always just seemed, wow, that's why we're here. You know, we talk about vibrational states, and I've read where one of the lowest vibrational states is when you take the life of another human. I don't doubt that. That's a, that's a serious thing. So you're, you're in basic training and who came to your graduation? My um, foster parents who ended up adopting me uh, came to my graduation. And, and it was kind of a weird situation because we'd had a, a, a fairly serious falling out before I'd gone to boot camp, where three months before boot camp, I literally moved out of the house. Um, so I didn't know if anybody was going to come. I kind of had set myself up to, uh, you know, you're on your own with this. Um, so seeing them at graduation was uh, both uh, incredibly appreciated, but also absolutely unexpected. Um, so my, my parents came, my little brother came as well. He ended up joining the Navy a few years later. So I know that seeing me in that way probably had a, a pretty solid effect on him, just like seeing my friend Andy did it for me. Um, so in some ways, I felt like I'd sort of, I guess, replayed that cycle that I'd gone through. Well, congratulations. You know, it's not easy to make it through Marine Corps boot camp. And so it means a lot about who you are as a person, too. And, you know, you understand teamwork and and mission and how to adapt. And how did those help you when you got deployed? Well, there's always this idea in the Marines. um, I'm not sure if it's the same in the Army or not. You can tell me. But you kind of have two missions in the Marines all the time, and they're battered India. Uh, The first is accomplish the mission. And the second one is take care of your troops. So looking back on it now, now that my mission really is taking care of the troops, it's sort of all reinforced itself. It's weird how you can get, you know, 15 years or 10 years away from something and you realize that these things you thought would never come back suddenly play a vital role in not just the way you think, but the way that you act. It's one of the fundamental linchpins of why ayahuasca, um, the entheogen that I, you know, the Veterans of War chooses to work with, works so well because you have some of these entrenched mental patterns that you don't even realize are affecting you. And more, more than that, that you can change them. But mission accomplishment and troop welfare were a huge part of being a Marine. And even getting out now, looking back on it, I still feel that same sense of, of, of purpose in those words. You know, this is kind of an interesting show. I know we've, we're starting out straight out of combat radio, but really what we're going to shift gears here probably in a, in a minute is Task Force Zen, because you're kind of like the, the bridge interview, you know? You're the combat veteran who is basically going into the the elements of what we're really trying to accomplish with Task Force N. So, you know, what did you see in Afghanistan and how do you think that affected you? 
Afghanistan changed me in a lot of ways. Well, a couple things about our unit. We were told early on that we would, my, my, I was part of an artillery unit. I was the logistics chief for an artillery unit. At that point, I was a staff sergeant. I'd been in um, eight years and I had my own Marines. And, you know, I was not just a leader, but I was one of four or five leaders for the unit that like anybody would come up to and talk to um, if something were going wrong. And one of the things that I realized early on was this is real. We're really at war here. You know, we had, we had six howitzers, 155 millimeter guns, the biggest guns that you're going to have on the ground. And we laid more rounds down range uh, in the first month than had been shot in combat since uh, Vietnam. Like we, we just literally did. And that means in real time that basically every 15 seconds or so, one of those giant guns is going off. So it's like, boom, 10, 15 seconds, boom. 24 hours a day. And, you know, you, as an ammunition technician and as a logistics chief uh, by trade, the kill radius on one of those high explosive 155 millimeter rounds is about 90 meters. So like a football field. And we're shooting football fields of destruction every 10 or 15 seconds, day in and day out. That's a that's a, a massive weapon system. You know, I, I was in a field artillery unit as the NBC NCO standing behind a 155. And I can remember, you know, I only got to pull the lanyard once. It takes the ground. Yeah, they popped my cherry, as you guys called it, you artillerymen. Yeah. And, and and I, you could stand behind the tube and literally see this massive shell coming out of the tube mm-hmm. and knowing that it's going 18, I don't know, 15 miles down range with that kill radius. So, oh, yeah. wow, so you guys are just lighting it up. and Yeah, night and day, no pause. Like 24 hours a day, we're lighting it up. And, and the reality uh-huh. is, is we had infantry units on the ground. They were, they were in conflict and it was our job to provide really to rain hellfire on the enemies that we were targeting so that our guys could get through. And what really struck me there. And I think what really kind of, again, just like boot camp broke that ideal of what it means to be that sort of sophisticated warrior into like, well, you're still out here to kill people. My uh, peers, another staff NCO, he led the fire direction and control tent, which is a Fancy word for the guys that aim the big guns and give the coordinates to the guys to fire. Right. Every time that our unit got a confirmed kill, they had a stencil uh, that they made out of, you know, a piece of discarded cardboard that basically looked like uh, a, a blowing up person. Right. It was like a person that was in a weird position, but you could tell they were exploding. And at the time we called those, that was our Haji kill count. And so every time that we had a kill on the back of the, the tent, he would spray paint one of these, um, you know, little markers. And by the end of the deployment, the amount of markers were the entire back of the tent. Like I count, I would sit there, you know, whenever there was a lull and I would, I would count them sometimes. And at one point, you know, there was about 130 people in our unit. At one point it was like 146 kills or something like that. And that was really weird when it broke for me, because before then I could kind of always tell myself, well, you know, you're just doing logistics. You're just giving people bullets. Like you're not, you're not really killing people. Um, but at some point there were more people dead than there were even in my unit. And I started to think to myself, like, where's your responsibility here? How much, how, how many of this 146 is yours? Uh, every single one of those rounds that went down range went through your hands first. That's just the reality. Like I, I gave people their ammunition. So every round that went down range touched me first before it touched somebody's unfortunate body. And that's honestly something I, I still struggle with. Like, you know, I, I definitely have PTSD 
it's one of the reasons why I uh, have made sure that there's an outlet for veterans still struggling with veterans of war to find uh, some semblance of real world healing and peace because I carried it so long. I carried it for you know nearly a decade without any sort of uh, effective way of combating it. And that, that for me, that was the moment when I counted and it was more people than our unit. That, that's when my, my uh, ego or, or my inner monologue, whatever you, know, whatever you want to call it, said, which of these are yours now? Like you can't, you can't keep pretending that you're not a part of this. You're definitely a part of this. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that, Wiley. You know, definitely, I feel you, you know, resonating at a soul level. And like you mentioned, being a warrior, you know, being a warrior is one thing. But when you start to, when those things start to resonate at that level, you start to question the purpose, you know, what, what's your purpose here? And, and, and what's this mission in life and what's this really all about? So how long was that deployment? Was that one of many? (laughs) No, uh, that, that was my, actually my last deployment. And there were two things also that kind of interestingly happened there. Um, so we were told early on that we were, we were initially, uh, in Kandahar, which is up North and relatively safe. This is 2008, the start of the spring offensive, still a very deadly time in the southern Helmand Valley of Afghanistan. But we started in Kandahar and then we got a mission to go into Helmand. And it was supposed to be, we were told it was going to be a three-week op. Our unit was packed, put on the convoy, and we were getting ready to go out, you know, the gate. But they had a couple other units in front of us, so we were just waiting for our turn. Uh, There's only one major road in Afghanistan. It's called Ring Road, and so everybody takes it. Uh, It's the only way to really make, with these really heavy vehicles loaded down with ammunition and gear, it's the only way to make it across the deserts and everything else that's in Afghanistan. Right. So the first convoy that went out, the fourth vehicle uh, that left maybe 20 or 30 miles out of Kandahar hit an IED. And I happened to be in the, uh, the, the command tent at that point uh, and watching on a live Harrier feed as that fourth car exploded. And it, it's an infrared. So, you know, it's like, uh, white is hot and, and black is not. And I got to watch the screen completely light up and then see this Humvee clearly uh, upside down, you know. Um, and at that time, there were four people in that Humvee. A couple of them were thrown from it. Uh, and you could see, like, the, you know, the white outline of them. And then watching their outline fade off the screen and realizing that they're dying, like they're getting cold, right? It's a, it's a hot, is 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 white. And I sat for um, maybe 10 minutes and watched this scene unfold and hearing the chatter come back over the radios and into the SISOC of one of the first sergeants had gotten killed and the a first sergeant dying in anywhere is if you're an enlisted person is like unheard of, like for whatever reason, even though it's absolutely ridiculous to think this way, you get this idea that your higher ups are kind of immune to the effects of war until it's in your face. And this was a guy that I trained with. This was a guy that, you know, for the year and a half prior to going out there, we'd been, everyone, the whole unit had been in combined arms exercises. So it wasn't somebody I didn't know. It was someone I knew very well and in a professional capacity, mind you. And watching the, the first two minutes of that explosion and seeing literally nobody run towards that vehicle, because for whatever reason, I don't know whether there was fire on the ground and it wasn't safe. Maybe the Marines were just scared because of the explosion. You know, it's everyone's first time out of the wire at that point. Most of them, some of them had several deployments. But watching that, that the, the life fade off the screen really hit me. 
it, it just, in my heart, I was like, these are people that aren't coming home. And then that was sort of uh, exacerbated a little bit later after active support operations uh, for artillery, we ended up going back to a small camp in Southern Helmand called uh, uh, Dwyer. And it was run by the, the British Royal Marines at that time. And we were kind of just taking up a spot in, in their secure location. And one of the other units had a lieutenant um, that I knew really well. We were of an age. We were both uh, 25, I think, at the time. Uh, and his name was Lieutenant Mann. So uh, Lieutenant Mann went out on an op and he came back. And as he and his unit laid down in their hooch, they had like a, in, in their, uh, you know, secure area, they had, they were surrounded by HESCO barriers and a HESCO barrier is basically like a metal cage filled with a burlap sack. And that burlap sack is filled, filled with, you know, sand or whatever. And, and it's, it's a, it's a barrier. It's a, it's a field barrier. Right. And whoever had stacked the, the, the HESCOs for their secure portion of the camp didn't do a, the, a good job. And they, when my friend came back to basically lay his head down after, you know, a patrol, the, the wall collapsed and it killed him. And this hit me for some reason, even harder. Mm. Lieutenant Mann dying. Maybe it was because he was my age. Maybe it's because I just saw him the day before. And, you know, we've been talking about his daughter, a daughter that now I have a daughter that's of an age with, you know, his daughter was four at the time. My daughter's four now. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, whose fault is this? Who's, who's, somebody has to be accountable. Somebody has to be accountable for this needless death. It wasn't like he was shot by somebody. It wasn't like, you know what I mean? It was a collapsing wall. Hmm. And the next day, knowing, you know, he's never going to be there again. He's not going to be able to come home to his daughter. He's, his wife is going to be forever traumatized by this was absolutely palpable for me. Um, like I said, I, I talked to him the day before. It was like, no big deal, just like anybody else. You know, you, you, you go, you grab your lunchbox and you, and you go out to the, the construction site, for lack of a better term. That was our construction site. It was war. So, yeah, you know that things can happen, but things aren't supposed to happen when you're in a safe zone. And that's where he lost his life. Um, that, that hit me the hardest. That really brought, like, the chaos of war and, and, and the unpredictability of a battle space into, into very, very clear focus. Well, you know, Wiley, the way you describe both of those, you know, with the Humvee blowing up and the loss of your lieutenant friend, you know, it's very apparent, the stark reality of what you just said, the chaos of a combat zone. Peace, peaceful area, supposed to be safe and secure, and then one that's, that's just deadly. It sounds like they're all deadly. There's no way that any human being on this planet being around such things could not be affected. There's just no way. I honestly wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't wish war on anybody. Um, And I've, you know, I've traveled a lot in my life. I've I've had uh, the fortunate ability or or the misfortune to be deployed in several places. Um, And I spent two and a half years in the Balkans, for example. Like, you know, I lived in Serbia. I I lived in uh, Bosnia. I, I lived in Yemen. I've seen what it is when uh, a culture or a society's government fails and what that means to people and, and the lack of security, the uncertainty for food and the lawlessness, to be absolutely honest. And the people that get hurt are always those that are already in the most vulnerable categories, like children and the elderly, people that don't have any sort of uh, security are the first ones to really feel the brunt of it. And even as a 25-year-old man, I saw that. Looking at it now with older eyes, I'm 38 now. Yeah, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't wish that kind of social and and structural decay on any person. 
it's horrific to your soul and to your community. So tell us how long you were in the Marine Corps after that last deployment. What, what was that like in the transition and what was going on? So my deployment, that last deployment was from February of 2008 until November of 2008. And I separated from the Marines December 3rd, 2008. So I had about three weeks from getting off the plane home to leaving the Marines. Was it adequate? Was the transition adequate? No, no, absolutely not. So tell us about that transition, the early part of your transition. You know, after that kind of a deployment, all I wanted to do was get out. Honestly, I was a lifer before that. I would have been in 20 years if I hadn't had those experiences. I'm a positive. I was very gung ho. I was absolutely a motivator was what you'd call them in the Marines. I was the kind of person that I wanted to make it better uh, systemically from the inside. But what I realized with that deployment was that I couldn't, I couldn't personally deal with the weight of those decisions. Like it was literally affecting me. It was, I was having nightmares, anxiety suddenly shot up where I was, you know, this confident outgoing person before I was much more comfortable isolating and being alone. My little things like, like my, my short-term memory suddenly wasn't very good. I used to be a person that, you know, I could read something and maybe I didn't have a photographic memory, but I had the next step after that. Like I could, I could read something once and almost verbatim repeat it to you uh, and tell you where to find it. That went away completely. I could feel my brain degrading. And that was scary. I mean, it was just like, what's happening to me? What's happening to me? So where did, um, you, then, where did you ETS from? From Camp Lejeune. Yeah, North Carolina. Okay. And at that point, I was married to my now ex-wife. So that story kind of tells itself in a little way. But when I came home, um, like I said, I had about three weeks. Then my ex-wife at the time was from Serbia. And she hadn't been home. She'd, she'd stayed during my deployment in Jacksonville and she hadn't seen her family in months. And so I, I said, you know, take, take, we got all this combat money or whatever, take, take some time and go see your family. And after we bought the ticket, within a week of us buying the ticket, uh, her dad had gotten in an accident. He was changing a tire on the side of the road and a semi hit him and, mm-hmm. and he died. And so she was kind of thrown uh, out of whack at that exact moment. And what that meant in real life was that uh, her mom and dad owned a a shipping and export business and her dad was the main mover. Uh, So her mom took over that business. And within two weeks of her dad dying, maybe three weeks, she found somebody uh, on her payroll that was stealing from her. And so she fired him. And he came back later that day with a pistol and shot her three times and killed her. So within a couple weeks of her dad dying, her mother was murdered. Uh, And this is hot on the heels of me coming right back from Afghanistan. Uh, to say that neither us, neither of us had uh, a surplus supply of emotion for anything else, I think is an understatement. But uh, to put it technically, we both had incredibly high empathy fatigue. It was incredibly hard for either of us to see out of our own trauma to, to help someone else, let alone even somebody we cared about. So uh, our relationship went just absolutely down the tubes, became very toxic, we became very angry. Um, and she was really my only support structure, to be honest with the outside of the Marines, the Marines were a big part of who and what I define myself as, but leaving the Marines and trying to redefine myself, you know, part of my manhood was absolutely defined on what kind of a man I am to my wife and getting to a point where, you know, you love somebody, but you just realize that you're hurting each other. You know, you're not, you're not good for each other, no matter what you were before things have changed. and, And this is hard was really tough. And I found myself flailing. Honestly, I found myself 
when that relationship broke apart, I, I didn't have any footing anymore. I didn't know how to define myself. I wasn't a Marine anymore, as far as I could tell. Um, I, I didn't, wasn't a, a husband. What am I? How are my friends going to, gonna you know, if I go and meet one of my friends at a bar, what are they going to say? Who's this guy? What does he do? You know, usually this is my friend, Mike. He's a broadcaster or whatever. What are they going to say about me? What are, what are now the adjectives that define my life? And I didn't have it. I didn't have any answer for that. Yeah, that's a tough, tough situation to be in. And that that story, I mean, your life is, it seems to me, you're dealing with it fine, but it's like stack trauma after, you know, security and safety as a child gets blown out. Then you get into the Marines and then you have a, a come to Jesus moment, if you will, internally for a while. And then what happens to your wife? I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. What was the... Um, you know, you're on a great mission now, but what, what was the turning point? What was the final proverbial straw that broke the camel's back and got you on the Veterans of War mission? What happened? That took a, a couple years to get to, but put it in, in, in quickly. I mean, when my relationship with my ex-wife fell apart, you know, when one door closes, another door opens. And my dream for all my life from foster care forward was uh, since I went on a trip when I was younger, I was like a little kid and I saved up all summer selling candy bars door to door to go with my seventh grade class to Washington, D.C., which is near where I live now, actually, uh, ironically, because I'm from Missouri. It's very far away when you're a foster kid. It's, it's an unbelievable distance even. When I got to DC as a kid, I remember looking over the Potomac River and seeing Georgetown University. And I asked my teacher at the time, what is that? And she said, it's Georgetown. It's a very prestigious university. It's very hard to get into. And I said, how can I get into it? And she kind of dismissed me out of hand. And she's like, you don't have to worry about that. You'll never get in there. Um, one thing you'll learn about me, John, is when someone tells me I can't do something, boy, that is that is the absolute only thing I need to uh, to just prove them wrong, to, to get in there and work my butt off to make sure that's a reality. It took me 15 years, but I, I did. I got into Georgetown. You know, honestly, when my ex-wife and I, when we broke things off, that was the catalyst to, to really leave. I said, you know, I got into Georgetown. I'm going to do this next part of my life, and I think we should do it separately. What did you study when you were there? The humanities, actually. And um, Nice. One we, of the best need things more of that, I ever man. picked. Yeah, no, I mean, everyone told me I was making a mistake. Uh, they said, you know, what are you going to do here? What are you going to learn there? Like, how are you going to apply this to your job later? I learned more in that in that discipline about life, about the world, about my part in it, than I ever had in any of the other disciplines that I tried to, to initially go for. When I first went to college, I went in for biology. And then my sophomore year, I did computing and engineering. Uh, and then my junior year, I thought I'm going to do management or business. And then when I got to Georgetown, I had to go back a year due to transfer credits, right? So I have two years to finish. And uh, then I said, you know, I need to do something out of the box. So humanities was where I landed on. Uh, and again, even though I went to all these technical things to learn like these important life skills, what I really needed to learn was how to function as a human in society. Like that was the thing I needed. That was what I didn't have. You can learn all of the computing and engineering you want. And if you want to stay isolated and write code, that's a great way to go. But for me, I think you can tell just by talking to me, I'm a fairly outgoing person. And I, I think that, you know, bridging these divides between healing and trauma was always intrinsically a part of my mission, whether I knew it or not. I love that, man. You know, there's a, you just reminded me, Wiley, of a book. I think it's all, all the shiny things, all things shiny. Uh, I've heard of that. And it's about exactly what you just described. It's about 
going back to Moby Dick and the great classics and, and the, the, the plays about life and the examples about life, but told from a from not a scientific point of view, but from a humanistic point of view. Right. And that, gosh, man, you just reminded me of so many things growing up. You know, one thing that my dad was really strong about was reading all the classics. Yeah. And so Ivanhoe and all these great books, you know, Swiss Family Robinson that I just. And Call after, of the Wild. Call of the yeah. Wild, you know, White Fang. And, uh, you know, and, White Fang. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know the deal, man. But, you know, and what happened to yeah. me, it's kind of funny that we segue into this because after my assault as a young boy between the third and fourth grade, that's what I what happened to me as I. I got lost in humanities, yeah. you know, in the classics, and it, and, and it helped. Uh, it was the firm, it was a foundation, and many years later with the TBI, then all that stuff happened. Anyhow, it's not about me; it's about you. So, you get your degree in humanities. Are you working on? I'm, I'm actually I'm in my senior year now. Yes, I, um, good. This for is you, this man. is what happened. So, um, <laughs> I got into Georgetown. I moved out to DC. I'm divorced. I'm by myself. I'm, I'm paying rent in a one room shared dwelling space. Uh, and my whole job was really just go to school, you know, come back. The GI bill was as poor as it was at the time was still doing enough for me that I could make it. And things were on paper going really, really well. But this is also when I got into that point where I was by myself and I really was isolated and I wasn't around anybody that I'd known. I had to make a brand new social circle and I wasn't very good at it. Right. Uh, I was really rough. I was, I was very, um, I think hard to talk to. Um, and because of that, I, I just got further and further away. And, and even though, you know, I made Dean's list like three out of the four semesters of my first run there. Um, I, I was suffering internally. Like I was having flashbacks. I was really struggling with insomnia. My anger would fly at a moment's notice. I used to be somebody that was a very slow burn kind of a, kind of an anger. Like, it would I'm a powder keg for sure. When you get me angry, I will be angry, but it took a lot to get me there. And what I found at this point in my life was it didn't take much at all to get me there. And that was really dangerous. Um, and about that time, I was one semester where I still am one semester from graduating. And I was thinking to myself, I'm going to get this piece of paper and everyone's just going to think I'm okay. And I'm not okay. Um, and my, uh, my grandfather, um, who I was close with, he was in the Korean War for, through my adopted family, um, he, um, he had died of a heart attack. And that, for me, it hit me. And it was kind of like the last really close person to leave, right? And mm. I remember sitting in my room in this one bedroom shared space. And I remember holding the pistol that he had carved the grips for. You know, it has his initials on it, BF. And um, thinking to myself, you know, I think I'm done here. I, I don't see any reason to be here anymore. This piece of paper isn't going to complete me. I'm not going to walk across the stage and suddenly be okay. Um, you know, nobody understands me. I'm all alone. And this trauma and this pain, I feel like has just been tailored to tear me down. And I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I, I, I think I've had enough. And once you, I don't know if you've ever dealt with, you know, suicidal thoughts, but once you kind of cross that road in your mind, hmm. it's, it's sort of always an option now. I made like that it, call, Wiley. I made the call. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you saved know, my life. So, man. <laughs> it was a moment where once I decided that I was going to do it, 
I actually came to peace. Like I felt good again, weirdly. I felt like, oh, well, this is all taken care of. And then it became kind of like, I need to, you know, tell, I'm not going to tell people what I'm doing, but I need to have my last words with people. I need to like, feel like I'm leaving in a good way. And it was about at that time that another nonprofit reached out to me because they, somebody that I had worked with at Georgetown said, oh, you got to meet this better. And he's, he's clever or whatever they said. So they called me and they said, do you want to be a part of this fellowship? Uh, we're going to go out and we're going to renovate, uh, uh, you know, the Dream Center in L.A., which serves underserved families on Skid Row. And I was like, that spoke to me because I had a really rough childhood. And I was like, you know, before you go, you could go and paint some walls and do something for someone else. If you're going to get out of here anyway, what's a, what's a couple more days? So I decided to do it. And when I was out there, I met a, a really important person in my life uh, named Lieutenant Colonel Mark Weber. And he and I just happened to be stationed at the same place for this renovation project. And he must have sensed it on me. Uh, he's very, very empathetic. And he sat down with me at, at a lunch afterwards and he's like, hey, what's wrong? And I was like, nothing. You know, I'm just playing that still that same charade. And he's, uh, he's like, look, uh, you're clearly something's wrong. And he's like, you know, I can tell you right now that it can get better, but I'd rather just show you what I'm dealing with. And I said, well, what is that? And he like, he took a breath in. And when he did, I, I noticed he held his breath. And I was like, are you in pain right now? And he says, I have stage four cancer in my stomach. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm, I literally am on borrowed time. I don't know how long I have left. They told me I wouldn't make it more than two months and I'm six months in right now. And I said, you know, I, I, I found out by this point that he's married. He has two, two sons. And I said, well, what the hell are you doing here? Like, why are you spending time talking to me? I'm like some loser you've never even met. Why aren't you with your family and, and, and you know, your, your sons or your wife? And he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, I don't choose how I die, but I choose every day how I live. That, for whatever reason, man, that was, the, that was what I needed to hear. That cracked right through. And uh, I felt really ashamed. I thought, here I am sitting with this like perfectly working body, and I'm just going to throw it all away. While this man across from me not only is working to keep me here, but he's sacrificing time with people that he could be with, that he truly loves to make a difference for other people who need it. Mm. He died a month later. It, it affects me to this day. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I can't tell you how absolutely I'm, I'm grateful I am and humbled that even somebody looked at me long enough to realize where I was at. But secondly, um, you know, working with psychedelics and entheogens specifically, one of the things that I've come to realize is nobody's ever late. You're always on time for the divine machinery of nature. You're never late. There's a plan here. And I showed up where I needed to be at the right time. And thank God he decided to, too. Um, and it changed my whole trajectory. Okay. So I came back yeah. home and, and I thought to myself, you know, do I still want to stay in this? Um, you know, do I still want to keep moving forward? Do I want to do something? And by this point, I'd already dropped out of Georgetown. Like, I just dropped out outright because, uh, I again, I thought I, I did it was December when I got this information to go on this you know, trip to LA and I just didn't sign up for classes for January. I was like, there's no point. Why would I do that? When I was coming back home, I was dating this girl and I, I called her from the airport and I said, you know, I'm thinking about staying out here. What would you do if I stayed out here and I just didn't come back? Hmm. And she said, well, I'd be, I'd be really upset. I, I love you. And are you trying to say you want to break up with me? And, um, that woman ended up being my wife. Like I'm, we've been together now for eight years. We have a four-year-old daughter and without those two people buying into me, I wouldn't be here flat. I mean, it's just plain and simple. 
So how did I get to Veterans of War? Well, this is the transition. By the way, Wiley, that's a great story. Very inspirational. I feel your heart, brother. You know, it's heartfelt. You know, you, you, you've... And I, one thing that you said that's, that resonates with me is that I think I got out of that story that everything happens for a reason. And we yeah, and people absolutely. cross our paths spiritually. Mm-hmm. It's not... Mechan- well, it could be quantum mechanics. I don't know, but... This conversation, the fact that I met you through another Marine friend of ours who really loves what you guys are doing, speaks volumes. So there you go, man. So veterans of war. Yeah. So what ended up happening was um, things were going really well. We, our family was growing. We had had a baby. Our baby was two years old at this point. And I was happy like incredibly happy. I, 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 in fact, I felt even a little guilty for how happy I was like that. I somehow didn't deserve to have this level of happiness because of the things I'd been a part of. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of guilt still. I was, I was clearly still dealing with PTSD. Um, and insomnia never went away. Um, you know, I, I also have tinnitus that's constant. Hmm. So these things that were a part of my new brain were there, but I also to counterbalance them had some very positive things happening. And, and so I was at a, a, you know, an interesting kind of plateau. And then my wife got pregnant again and we were so excited. In fact, she told me that she was pregnant on my birthday. So it felt like even more significant, like it was somehow a gift. And two months later we had a miscarriage and this may sound like a crazy thing, but I think, I don't know how else to explain it. When you've had a life like mine, you know, one of the things that I'd gotten good at was kind of bargaining with God in my head. Like, if you can get me through this, then I'll be this kind of person. If you do this for me, then I'll make sure I do that. And one of the things that I sort of always said, no matter where I was or how scary things got, were whatever you got to do to me, do it, but don't hurt my family. Like, that's the only thing. Like, I will do anything on this planet that I need to do, but protect my family. That was, that was the understanding. That was the, um, the bargain as far as I understood it. And when we had the miscarriage my whole world shook again. I found myself in the darkest places I'd ever been. And I was questioning my relationship to life, to God, to to the world. And I couldn't understand after everything that I'd endured, how God could take a part of my family away. It got just as dark as it ever had. And I remember, you know, my wife is still reeling with this. I mean, keep in mind, no matter how bad it was for me, I didn't have a baby die inside of me she had a much more intimate connection and she was struggling and it felt like it was never going to be good again. I started feeling some of those same changes that I felt in my first marriage where that love was turning into resentment or something, some other, you know, equally negative and powerful emotion. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I knew that I couldn't go through that twice. Like I just couldn't lose my whole support structure twice. And it was in that fear, in that desperation that I decided to go to Peru to take a trip that I had been researching for about six years. I'd, I'd heard about, it's really interesting, you just uh, interviewed you know, Rick Strassman, Dr. Rick Strassman, I don't mean to take away his very earned degree. Um, he's the reason I got on this path in some ways. Uh, I ended up, when I was really by myself and feeling suicidal, I, I saw his, his documentary, DMT, The Spirit Molecule on YouTube, and it sounded terrifying which is why I never did it, but it opened up the door for me to start studying what, what is happening in my brain. 
to start understanding like, you know, there are some, it's not just how you feel. There are some physical things that have happened now inside of your brain. And I realized that some of the hallmarks of PTSD, like this hypervigilance, the insomnia, the um, preoccupation with safety and, and all the things that all the many different facets that PTSD as a word covers, um, weren't things that I could just think my way out of. It wasn't something I could just control by being mindful, for example. There were literal connections that had frayed. There were parts of my neural pathways that had degraded. And that explained a lot of things to me. It explained my short-term memory loss. It explained why I couldn't sleep. Um, It explained my irritability and my anger. And I started thinking, is there a way I can fix this? And then after seeing that, that DMT, the spirit molecule, it got me thinking, maybe this is one of the ways where I can fix it. Maybe this offers a path towards really recovering. Because at this point, I'd done everything the VA had said. I realized I had a problem. I visited the VA. I got my rating. I'm 70% disabled, full PTSD, tinnitus, bad knee, bad ankle, all the typical things that a lot of veterans work with. And I, I got to be honest with you, I, I'm absolutely humbled and grateful that that's the extent of it. Because I have friends that have it so much worse. I am so fortunate. Um, and I don't mean to ever say anything other than that. I am so fortunate to even be here. Well, you know, um, I don't know. In, in relatively good shape. Yeah, and and, uh, and I hear you, brother. You know, and you mentioned Dr. Rick Straussman, and and I know you're going to get to this component uh, of this uh, these medicines that have been around for centuries. There's what I like about Dr. Straussman, and he's looking into prophecy now and connections to the Old Testament and the Bible, and and even like Dr. Joe Tafor, who's big time with Niwe Rao Center down in Peru near Iquitos. They talk about the spiritual connection and and Mm -hmm. when when humans have been traumatized over and over and over again that the soul separates from their very being and we're in this constant struggle to reconnect with the soul and and you know so tell us so you tell us about that journey to peru you know the connection trying to find it again yeah so you know i did my research as well as i could but like anything else you don't know what you don't know Uh, I found a place uh, that was highly regarded by people that I thought I could trust in this area. And there had even been like documentaries by CNN and stuff like that about it. But there, it's 2015, there was very little application to the veteran uh, narrative. I had no idea how it was going to work with PTSD. I just had hopes. And so the place that I went to um, was actually kind of dangerous, honestly. Looking back at it now, uh, it was not a place that was centered in the light. It was, it was a place that was motivated by money and motivated by, um, uh, pride and not something, not a place that was, uh, motivated by healing, which is what I really needed. But the great thing about ayahuasca and any of these entheogens is, you know, in a big way, they reflect what's inside of you. So regardless of the situation I was in, the message that I was getting, you know, was still the same that I get today working in a good place. Uh, ayahuasca may have a, a different signature, but it's the same writing, if you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. So I found, firstly, that it. I, I thought that I was going to go there and immediately attack my military trauma. I thought that's what I was going to have to deal with. But it went to the root. It went back to my childhood. It, it immediately took me to that abandoned kid in foster care, trying to find a way through life. That was shocking, but necessary. Um, and... It was through subsequent trips that I realized, you know, you needed more than what you thought you needed and you're stronger than you thought you knew. And I found coming home 
after three ceremonies the first time that it was that I was connected in a way that I never had been before, that I was receptive to what life was giving me for the first time, and that I was honestly humble, grateful, and, and trying actively to accept, you know, this new reality, which is not what I was before. Before I was, I think, arrogant and lashing out and certainly not accepting what life was giving me because I, I didn't like the flavor. Um, now I realize, you know, those things that were happening, th- those were opportunities to learn and they were opportunities to change my viewpoint and to be a better person for others so that they could learn and they could change their viewpoints too. Ultimately, um, it was incredibly one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. Um, I found a peace inside me that I didn't think was possible. And, you know, I, it's not a magic bullet. It, it, I still have tinnitus. My ears will ring. Um, but, you know, I sleep now. Um, my, my dreams, I do have nightmares occasionally, um, but they're not the way they were before. They're not desperate, panicked. Um, they're more like, you know, I think how most people would have nightmares. They just maybe have a military tinge sometimes. But I was in the military. What can I expect? Um, and I think that that's part of it. I think that one of the things that it taught me was to be okay with me. Um, you know, so often in life, we look around us and we try to define ourselves by how other people see us. And that can be incredibly toxic. Um, trying to be something you're not or trying to fit into a mold you're not, it makes as much sense as my child trying to put a square through a circle um, hoop in a toy. You know, it, it doesn't work. I was just talking to somebody about that the other day, how we all stay in this comfort zone and we feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And and just about everybody out there, you know, to some extent is living some of that. You know, what's interesting too, uh, and there has been, and you've alluded to this, Wiley, there's, there's actual studies out there where people that have had some serious emotional issues and addictions have um, ventured into that realm of, of uh, what I call spiritual medicines or, you know, and two or three applications and, you know, residual effect. But to continue on, they literally change their entire trajectory, as you well pointed out. Um, and you're right. I don't think it's a magic bullet, but it's part of a process that can truly help people become grounded again and become real. And connected. I mean, because really, that's that's what I think is missing in the veteran community and the community at large. I think that we all we, we we're in a time where we have access to connectivity that we've never had for humans on the planet. And yet in this time, people seem more alone than ever. Um, it, the, it, the, is, isn't that amazing, man, with as connected as we're supposed to be with all this technology? You just that's that's pretty cool. You said that that. In an age of all this connectivity, we're really disconnected humanly. Right. We've been isolating ourselves with technology. And, uh, and I think that a lot of veterans, when you leave, I think one of the big triggers for, for that negativity is the loss of identity that comes from taking off the uniform, the loss of shared purpose, the loss of a shared narrative. This is why we're here. This is what we're doing. It becomes, what are you doing? How are you paying the bills? What are you doing for your family? And I missed that and needed that. I needed that identity. Uh, it centered me in a lot of ways. At least that's what I thought at the time. But through my work with entheogens, and you know, entheogen, you said it's a new word. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful word. It, it actually means unlocking the God within you, unlocking your own inner spirit. 
that's that's like entheo means like inside in genesis you're generating something from the inside and that's what these do these 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 this class of medicine of medicines are a powerful tool to reconnect to who you really are what you're really supposed to be doing there i i tell the people that work uh, that i work with uh, the, the veterans i say you know this is an analytical tool it's not going to solve your problems but it is going to show you why you're having your problems and where they are. It will give you options for how to change them. But the onus is on you to work and make those changes. It's not going to change you. It's going to change your relationship to your trauma. And how you decide to deal with that moving forward is going to be your decision. I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink. I can take you to the work site, but I can't make you work. Um, and that's, that's what this is. It offers the ability to say, you know, for me... Um, I'll give you a couple of the things that I saw in ayahuasca. One of the things I've carried with me a lot and that I felt a personal burden from to some extent was there have been several times in my life where I've been the first responder to either a car accident or something that's relatively horrific. Right. And in those situations, I found that again and again, I'm the, literally the, even if I'm the fourth car back or uh, a block away, I'm the first human being that gets out and triages the people that are hurting. I run to the scene. I get out of my car, I leave it running, and I run to help whoever needs that help, no matter what it means. The last time this happened, there was a car accident about two blocks from my house, and uh, two cars had, had hit each other head on, and both of the cars basically ended at the windshield. They'd hit each other so hard that they were flat. And because it was the cars were so mangled, I, I didn't know what to expect when I opened the doors, right? I was like, this could be literally nightmare fuel from this point forward. Just prepare yourself. You're going to have to get in here and deal with something. And to much to my greatest fear, the first car door that I opened, I saw a car seat in. So I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be, it's going to be kids or something, you know, uh, which is a definite trauma point for me. Uh, kids that are hurt, they can't do anything and get out of that situation. Um, but I opened up the door and, you know, there's this little baby, maybe a year old and she's crying, but she's totally fine. So, you know, I pick her up and I take her out. I open the passenger door. It's like the, um, it's her, um, nanny and, and, you know, nobody speaks English. They're only speaking Spanish. And my wife is from El Salvador. So I speak a little bit of Spanish, but it's like white person Spanish. Oh yeah. 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 Doing the best I can. And ultimately one of the things that I was carrying is like, where, where are my, where are my, fellow peers. Well, why am I always the one running up by myself? Why do I have to shoulder this burden by myself again and again and again? Because I'll do it. Like I said earlier, I'll do it. I got big shoulders, but man, it would be a lot easier if I had some, some help. Um, and that's what I kind of brought to ayahuasca, one of those ideas. And so ayahuasca gave me back this vision of um, a field of flowers and it zooms in on this blue flower and this whole field of blue flowers. And I realized that that flower is me. And the flower kind of looks up to where I'm at and it says like, I don't want to be a flower. And I start laughing because it's ridiculous. Why is this flower like denying its purpose? You know, look towards the sun, photosynthesize, do your thing. Um, and I realized in that moment that I, you know, that that was me. I, I, that is my purpose. My purpose is to go into harm's way if necessary, but to help those people that can't help themselves. And why am I denying that? Like, why am I trying to pretend that that's not in me when all I, I have all this evidence, a lifetime of evidence that that's exactly what I'm built to do. Right. So I, I kind of looked at it and with ayahuasca, at least for me, every time that I have one of these visions, you always have a moment at the end 
where it's kind of like asking you, you can feel the, the tension, like, what are you going to do with this? Right. And so I thought at that time, you know, I got, I got to bring this medicine to the veterans. And so it said, are you really going to do it? And I said, yes. And uh, I was bullshitting because I, I did want to do it, but I was afraid of how would I make this happen? So it immediately goes to the next, uh, the next vision because you can't bullshit the medicine. You can't bullshit yourself. Ultimately, that's what you're trying to do. And I wasn't, I didn't really mean it. So the next thing I saw was being in this ceremonial maloka, the, the, the ceremonial uh, hut. And around me are specifically four other veterans that I knew due to just how this works, that they were struggling. Like they, they were with all of the things, like whether it was PTSD, suicidal thoughts and ideations, military sexual trauma, um, you know, I could tell these people were suffering. And yet here they were in this ceremonial space and every one of them was smiling and laughing and happy. I could see it in their hearts. They were finally happy again. Um, and then that moment, I mean, uh, I, I was ashamed. I was literally like I started crying from the depths of my heart. And I thought to myself, what kind of man are you if you're not willing to, to make uncomfortable steps to help other people? And I realized that the uncomfortable step for me was my credibility. You know, I'd been working in this space prior to this for several years, you know, with veterans, as an advocate for veterans, trying to help people come home effectively, trying to help societies, well, honestly, trying to help people, which would then springboard into the families, which would springboard into their communities and ultimately make a change, a wave of positive, good energy from the veteran space. And my fear was that all of the credibility that I built up in this space to be an advocate, well, as soon as I started talking about something with such a heavy stigma as psychedelics, would be gone. And that I would lose funding or I would lose backers and, and God, how am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to, you know, how's my family going to keep moving forward if I can't still provide this same level of, of security that I had before? But when I weighed that against these people that I knew literally committing suicide, I felt in my heart ashamed. And, I, and I, I asked myself again, like, what kind of man are you if you found healing here, if you don't bring it back to your tribe? How can you face your daughter and say, this is who I am and this is what I do, knowing that deep down you had an opportunity to do something meaningful, but because of your fear, you didn't do it. And so that time when it said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to change everything. So I came home in April of last year and I changed Veterans of War from an organization that tells veterans stories to one that actively fights to combat the corrosive after effects of war and specifically suicide. Um, because that, that is the problem in my community, as I see it, in our community, is that we have men and women that for no other reason than a lack of access haven't been able to return home meaningfully. They come home as shells of them, their former selves and they're not able to connect. They don't have uh, people that either understand them because less than one-tenth of one percent of all Americans have even served or they come back and, and the people they think they can count on um, for whatever reason aren't there in the way they need them to be. So the, fundamentally, they can't come home. Uh, I found a really interesting quote uh, from uh, the Vietnam War, which was, you know, just because you leave Vietnam doesn't mean Vietnam ever leaves you. And that really resonated with me because I left Afghanistan more than 10 years ago, but it's always in me. Yeah. Uh, and, and 
through my work with medicines now, I realize that to accept that and to integrate it is much more powerful than to deny that that's now a part of you that you need to, you know, that you need to talk to. Um, and ultimately, I think a lot of my sincerity and my passion comes from the fact that I can see that in my, in my fellow men and women in arms. I look around and I see a generation that's been traumatized that have been sold this narrative of, you know, you're, you're promoting the defense of our nation, you're, you're um, promoting democracy. But in real life, they're finding like I did when you kick open a door uh, that here I am standing in Afghanistan looking at people whose only, only possession is a prayer mat. And here I am in full body armor, looking like, you know, some kind of futuristic warrior. I got night vision goggles, gloves, the best weapon the money can buy. These people weren't, were never our threats. You know, this is, this is not the reality. They, what you believe and what you've been sold is not the real reality that it is. And a lot of, I think, veterans come home and they have this um, survivor's guilt or this, this, this trauma caused by being a part of something that they didn't realize they were a part of. Um, and I've heard that from so many different veterans, too, from all branches of service. You know, yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you make your new you and incorporate the you that you were that may have been a part of something actually bad, actually evil? You know, um, you're, and I, not, I don't denigrate anyone's service. I, I again, uh, from my bottom of my heart, anybody that decided to put their right hand up and be a part of something um, to give up your rights to, to, to do something that you thought was a good thing. Well, you know, uh, I, I thought it was a good thing too at the time. I said it before this episode, Wiley, I'm telling you, this is a very, very, very special episode because you're bridging again from straight out of combat radio into task force Zen and, you know, your story resonates. It's, you know, you've hit so many, I know you and I could have several conversations You've, you know, uh, loneliness and isolation and depression and PTSD. And, uh, you know, there's so many different topics that we have hit upon. You know, how can people find out more information about veterans of war if they're interested in your programs? What do, what do they need to do and how can they contact you? The easiest way is just go to veteransofwar.org. Um, I would encourage anybody that is struggling with any of the things that I've mentioned, just to check it out. I've done all the research in terms of how these uh, medicines work. I posted it on the website. Um, there's an application on the website. If you uh, follow the tree and get far enough and you do your, your homework and read about it. And ultimately the thing that I would tell those people is if you look at my logo, I've picked very, I'm, I'm very uh, keyed in on the importance of words. I think words are really important. Um, and the things that I think are missing in our community of veterans are to be connected and to have a meaningful path towards recovery. Most veterans here again and again, for especially from the VA and from, from psychologists, this is just the new you. This is what you have to now deal with. And I've found through trial and error, that's not true. There are safe and effective paths towards meaningful recovery that are available and have been available to our species for millennia. Like psychedelics and specifically these natural and uh, entheogenic medicines, they have been a part of all our culture since our culture had a name, like literally millennia. And with that in, in your mind, um, I just would urge these people to understand that 
just because something is stamped by Bayer or Pfizer, or it doesn't mean that it's a, a solution. It doesn't even mean that it's it's a positive outcome necessarily. Whereas these these ancient solutions, um, you know, trauma has been a part of the the human reality since humans were humans. Uh, it doesn't know gender or age or race. It doesn't know socioeconomic standing, uh, and honestly, it doesn't care whether you were in the military or not. But to think that as a species that we haven't come up with ways to co- like effectively combat trauma, uh, I think is kind of ridiculous. And, and this class of chemicals offers that it offers a true chance to reconnect again to what makes you, you and your purpose here and to meaningfully recover, to come back and not just live again, but to thrive, to be an active part of life. That's, that's what veterans of war is trying to create. Uh, it's, it's a system that is built to have the most, the, the highest degree of chance of creating safe and effective healing for the people that, that go through it. And it, it represents hard work. It's not, uh, it's not easy, but nothing in this life is. And, you know, most of the people that come to me, come to me in desperation. And while that's a sad reality, it is the right way to, to approach this. It, it's, it should be approached with reverence and with preparation uh, and hopefully with as much education. And I've tried to create those left and right lateral limits to the best of my ability. Keep in mind, I'm still like a crayon eating Marine, so I'm doing the best no, I, I can. Here. I get all that. So, you know, no, that's fantastic work and it's so badly needed. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that more and more people are becoming more and more receptive as we start to educate, I got a couple of final questions here for you. Oh, real quick, if I could, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, no. So I just wanted to say, uh, to just close out that thought. Um, so what does Veterans of War offer? Uh, we offer a six-month fellowship for teams of veterans that's designed around the guided use of plant medicines, such as ayahuasca, which focuses on education, preparation, integration, and long-term support. I want to, we what we've created is a uh, framework that not only helps you understand what you're getting into, but supports you through the whole process and in perpetuity to people that have also gone through this process that understand and can help. Um, and that's what we want. Connect to veterans of war and recover. That's what we do. It's a, it's a beautiful mission and uh, we wholeheartedly support it for sure. And uh, whatever we can do to help get the message out there, Wiley. A couple of final questions here. You know, do you live by a personal mantra? And if you do, what is it? And what does freedom mean to you? So my mantra, I have a few. Um, One of the ones I say to my daughter all the time is uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Anything that you're willing to do, take the time to do it right is what that really means. And um, if you want to get good at it, you'll practice. And then freedom means that each person has the ability to access whatever they need to, in order to feel uh, complete and connected, whether that is speaking about entheogens, whether that's speaking uh, about, you know, just the ability to have thoughts that maybe uh, are counter to what the narrative of, of the population you're part of is. Real freedom means that there are no limits on your ability to express yourself as long as you're not inhibiting on somebody else's uh, ability to express themselves too. Every time I ask that question, I always get a different answer. And it's wonderful. You know, so, you know, well, there you have Wiley Gray, the founder, the spirit knot, the trauma knot of Veterans of War. 
uh, offering ancient solutions for real and current and relevant human issues. Uh, you're well on your way. I look forward to the time we can actually meet in person. I uh, Whatever we can do to help you, Wiley, um, we're here for you, man, at Veteransofwar.org slash donate, my friend. Yeah. If you can't donate, we're gonna spread, do whatever you can to help spread the word. We're going to spread the word and uh, appreciate your time and energy and uh, appreciate your mission. And uh, I look forward to the time we can see, see each Thank other. Thank you, John. Person. I appreciate it. We'll be in touch, man. We got things going on, so we're here for you. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. And again, if, if anybody out there, if you know somebody that's hurting, please send them my way. Because if I can't help them, I'm sure I can connect to somebody who can. Thank you. Thank you. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Save us all. Down.